Hi, welcome to the Defenseless Moments podcast. I'm Hunter Visser, and today I'm going to be speaking with Larry Wilson about chapter five of his new book, Defenseless Moments, A Different Perspective on Serious Injuries. Chapter five is titled Equilibrium, the progression and eventual termination of safety judgment and skill development. Today, Larry's going to share some stories about how he discovered the concept of equilibrium and why most adults think they're safe enough already. Remember, the book's available on Amazon, and the article in its original format is available on the Paradigm Shift landing page. Please take a chance to read the chapter or the article first before listening to this conversation, as it'll make it a lot more meaningful. And as always, the links to the book and to the article are available in the episode notes. All right, so Larry, there's a number of new concepts in this chapter, new ideas. Which one would you say is the most important? Well, the, the one at the, the very end of the last chapter where I'm saying that I is not on task and mine not on task, those two critical errors would most likely be involved in a serious injury or fatality. But it's not, as I say in the next chapter, this chapter, it's not really fair or accurate to say involved because none of us are ever trying to get seriously hurt. So it's like they both have to be involved. In other words, you if because if you do see it or you see it coming, then you get the benefit of your reflexes, which most of the time is enough to keep something very serious from happening. In other words, you, you get a chance to hit the brake or to jerk the steering wheel or, or to get a hand out or to just duck your head a bit so that it isn't, you know, it, it isn't nearly so bad. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I'd never really thought about it that way until we started working on this podcast and this book together that from, you know, from that point of view, a reflex or not getting a reflex, you need to have both happen at the same time. Those eyes are not on task, mind not on task. Yeah, it's like, you know, for years I was saying that they, you know, they would both most likely be involved and... And I'm not exactly sure, sorry, when it hit me. No, it has to be involved because you're never trying to get hurt. And it's interesting, too. I mean, you know, when I got into this um, business well over 30 years ago, you'd hear people say this all the time that, you know, nobody ever ever plans to have a a serious workplace injury, Um, you know, that there was always, you know, sort of this this doom and gloom about it nobody's ever trying to get hurt and then it would be like they would ignore that after they introed with it and then just want to talk about how you know buddy didn't make a good decision and that ended up with a serious injury or or worse a fatality and you can't ignore that part we all yeah. are extremely motivated not to get seriously hurt. And if we see it or we see it coming, we can't even stop the reflex action. Well, yeah, and that actually brings me to another question, which is about speed. Um, where does speed play into it? Like when you're moving too fast for a reflex to happen, um, I don't know. Like, speed. Well, it, okay, it, it, first of all, Normally, people will not put themselves into a position in the line of fire that they can't get out of in time 
on, on a deliberate on a deliberate basis. Like if they actually think there's not a chance I'm going to be able to get out of the way in time, they're not going to stand there, right? Yeah. But of course, this is the whole issue is if you forget about it, right? You know, and you're not paying attention and you become complacent, you could easily step backwards without even looking to see if there was a car coming behind you or if you're talking a railroad or a train coming down the track, believe it or not. Yeah. And just stepping backwards, like right, right on the track. So into the line of fire on a non-deliberate basis. But there are other times when you're just not going to get the benefit of your reflexes because whatever happened, happened too fast. So yeah. The classic that I think we've all done is when you're, you're, you're trying to open something and you're, you're prying towards yourself and it <laughs> lets go and you kind of smash yourself in the face, right? And you just didn't have time to stop or, or get, your, get your head out of the way in time. Or you hit your thumb instead of the nail with the hammer. Well, that, that, yeah, that for, that for sure. Um, you know, when, when I was 12 years old, we had this uh, tree in the backyard that needed to come down. We had an axe, and so my dad was going to take me out and show me how to chop a tree down with an axe. I usually asked the class, I said, how many of you have chopped a tree down with an axe? And usually most of the men put their hand up, and I say, how many of you have chopped a tree down with a chainsaw? Usually the same number or more put their hand up. And I say, which was better? <laughs> yeah. Everybody kind of laughs, right? But anyhow, um, we had a chainsaw in the garage, so I'm not really sure if this was you know, right into manhood or whatever the deal was. But we went out, and my dad started showing me how to chop the tree down. And it, it's not really very complicated. You're sort of taking wood wedges out of a tree to make a wedge into the tree, and then you do the same thing on the other side, and eventually, hopefully, you play this one side higher than the other, and the tree will fall where you want it to fall. But you have to have enough wrist strength and you have to have enough arm strength to get the axe in far enough and to get it in accurately. Yeah, and like to make it efficient, you have to give it a really good swing. Otherwise, you're just sort of tapping the yeah, tree. Yeah, but, it, but it can't, <laughs> you can't just kind of be hacking in. You have to be... Taking a chunk. There has to be, yeah, a certain accuracy to the swing. And I just wasn't strong enough to... To get it, I could get the axe in if I swung, but I couldn't get it in accurately. And so, like, you know, I'm trying to knock the tree down like it's a baseball with a baseball bat. And of course, it's not. When my dad comes out, he shows me again. And then he hands it back to me, and I try again, and nothing's happening. And he comes out and he shows me again, and I try again. And then he said, Oh, maybe you're not old enough for this, Larry, which is true, but it's not what you want to hear when you're 12. And so he goes back up onto the porch and grabs a drink I'm not sure just what but I now wind up just like Mickey Mantle and I am swinging as hard as I can at this tree and I don't know if it was the first or the second one with one of these mighty swings but the axe hits the tree and it caroms off the tree into my shin bone off the shin bone and embeds itself into my leg and when I pulled it out I heard this plop sound don't know if you've heard the plop sound before. Not a good sound. Anyhow, I look down through the cut pant leg, and it's just like a biology textbook. You can see all the layers of skin right down to the bone, the little artery spurting away there, and every bit of 12-year-old macho bravado left right at that time, I can assure you. 
I start yelling. My dad runs down, grabs me, and picks me up, literally like I'm a kid, and starts running to the car. And I got to tell you, I'm not like, you know, I'm, I'm not hurt that badly. I mean, I could have been uh, very hurt, very badly. I could have chopped both my toes off, um, never would have played basketball again. But and, you know, as it was, the reason he's running is because my mother is running after him. And she is furious <laughs> that he's let me out there with this axe and that he was up on the porch. And I think she's saying something about, you're drinking a beer. But anyhow, so he just taking me. I remember him looking in the rearview mirror. And her in the driveway, and I'm thinking, you know, he's never going home. <laughs> um, so 12 stitches, you know, certainly wasn't the end of the world. But like I said, it, you know, there was an awful lot of force. Could have easily taken my toes off, which, uh, you know, which really would have, would have been a very, very serious injury. So when things are moving that fast, and there's that little mind on task in terms of line of fire, potential line of fire, then sometimes, yeah whether you're looking at what you're doing or not isn't necessarily going to give you the benefit of your reflexes. But those are very relatively rare when you consider, you know, the the moment-to-moment risk that occurs whenever you are driving a motor vehicle anywhere over, you know, 30, 40, 50 kilometers an hour, let alone 100 kilometers an hour, right? So... Yes, there'll be times where it's too fast for you to get a reflex, but compared to the number of times like we were talking about before where you you just step backwards without looking or you step without looking where your foot is going to go, right? In other words, the reason you didn't get the benefit of your reflexes was because your eyes and your mind were not on task. Absolutely. Well, that story is also a pretty good lead in into that next concept you talked about in this chapter, which is about your kids and how you discovered equilibrium. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yes. Well, things were going very well um, with the career. Uh, I'd been uh, nominated for a safety professional of the year, but my wife and I had started having children and uh, a little bit late, um, you know, I was 40, she was 33, so uh, I'm not suggesting anybody do this, have uh, four children in five and a half years, but um, we were, uh, all of a sudden, there were a lot of little kids around all the time, and I am, we're doing everything we can in terms of hazard mitigation, round corners, you know, gates on the stairways, you name it, but you know, we we can't, I can't stop. I'm looking at my kids' shins and they're just like filled with bruises. And I look at their friends and they're, you know, they're no different. And I'm looking at the adults and the adults don't have bruises all over their shins. As the kids started to get older and I started looking at their older cousins who had bruises, but they weren't, there weren't as many, but some of them were more severe because, you know, they were now on bicycles, uh, for instance, not tricycles, skateboards. I started noticing that this this thing is dynamic, like I've said before. It's it's not that you you just start out getting hurt a certain amount. You start out getting hurt a lot and a lot, and then it starts to get less and less and less. And interestingly enough, on the other side of the equation or the coin, if you will, the amount of hazardous energy tends to start going up and up and up as well, 
too, right? From tricycles to bicycles to potentially, you know, motorized bicycles of some sort. Um, And we get more comfortable with the risk because now we're taking on more risks. We're not paying as much attention to things, right? Well, and we're making fewer mistakes. We have more confidence in ourselves as well, too. But we, we learned all of this. I mean... Uh, you've been at the sessions, Hunter, when I'll say, how many of you have slammed a finger in a car door once? And almost the whole room puts their hand up. And I'll say, yep. did it hurt? And they all, yeah, oh, yeah. And so how many of you have done it twice? And there'll be a couple of people who sheepishly put their hand up. But normally when you say, how many of you have done it three times? You've got to have, I don't know, probably about four classes of 25 people before you have somebody put their hand up. I mean, it's not very common. And we didn't stop getting in and out of cars. Yeah, we just learned to stop putting our finger in the way of the door. (laughs) Well, in the line of fire, right? In other words, we we learned to avoid the line of fire. I mean, but these are all learned. These are all things that that we learned, right? Now, you get to a certain point where the frequency of the injuries and the errors is less you're dealing with more hazardous energy. The consequences of the errors can be can be more severe, but typically, you know, we all get to this point where our skills have sort of plateaued from a, a natural pain learning point of view because the frequency just isn't severe enough anymore. There's no real pattern to it anymore. If there was, we'd have quit skateboarding or we would have quit skiing or something if we were really convinced that that's what it was. And you know people who've quit riding motorcycles because they just have decided that it's too dangerous, right? Yeah. But within that, you also stop questioning your judgment about things. I mean, it's a free world. So if you thought you were going too fast... You take your foot off the gas. If you think you're going too slow, you put your foot on the gas. And after a while, everybody that drives a lot faster than you is an idiot. And everybody that drives a lot slower is a wiener. Yeah. But we all come to our own level. And we come to that level, like, freely. In other words, we're, we're typically making a, a pretty much free choice about it. And as we all went through with the personal risk pyramid... It's not like people are basing these decisions on, on one or two data points. We've all been hurt and experienced accidental pain thousands and thousands of times. So they're, they're naturally going to be pretty resolute or, or they're going to think a fair bit of you know confirmation to this judgment. In other words, I'm not basing this because I read a couple magazine articles. I'm basing this on being hurt 10,000 times in my life up to now. So I'm not at a certain point going to continue to question this unless something bad happens. And then when I look back on it in retrospect... I will likely be able to see some of the very obvious human factors like rushing or fatigue or, you know, a a real, you know, high level of complacency here compared to the amount of hazardous energy or or frustration. Those, Those things will be very apparent in retrospect. But here's the insidious part is that it's not that easy to tell that you're actually in one of those states 
and know that it's a risk unless of course you get to the next chapter that we're going to talk about which is the whole self-triggering yeah and so i guess eventually what you're saying is and we've all felt this but adults get to this point of feeling like they're safe enough already do you think that's where the skill development stops or is there an opportunity to bring some of this awareness back into it how hard is it to train adults on those habits and trying to increase that awareness is it, that's a kind of a loaded question but well well but i think you're getting the essence in other words what you're trying to say in a nutshell nicely is okay so how easy is it to train old folks your age larry with this stuff i mean <laughs> i know you're not trying, me me i'm pretty malleable still you know but <laughs> like what, what about an old dog new tricks you know i mean all that sort of stuff and this is this is very very true um uh, because first of all that the it's harder to change ingrained habits right so the effort required to change is more just it's just going to be more because that habit has taken so long right so that's going to be difficult um, that baseline habit will be incredibly well grained in, ingrained rather um, but the willingness to change there's a different story altogether with the old dog. And personality traits also factor into this as well. Like we all know some people who, you know, could it make the Olympic stubborn team if <laughs> you don't, regardless of what country they were in, right? Like it wouldn't have to just be Albania, if you know what I mean. They could make the Russian team probably even without steroids. Nevertheless, um, the, the, the thing is if you go, if you try to change people, I don't know how far ahead of myself I'm getting here, but what you need to be able to do, and this part, you need a little bit of time, so just, just give me a minute here, everybody. But this has a lot to do with the complacency continuum. But as you start off doing something, like riding your bike, your awareness is very high. If you're like me, it took probably 100% of your skill um, attention, really, to, to just stay balanced on the bike. And you, and you probably fell a couple times, too. But after a while, you come to sort of the first stage of complacency where the skill or the fear is no longer preoccupying and your mind can wander. Once you get to that stage, what people don't understand is that you don't give your mind permission to wander. It happens without your permission. I mean, you can make a concerted effort to keep your mind back on task, keep coming back on task if you're making that kind of a conscious effort. But without it, all of us eventually did start driving on autopilot, right? Now, how long it took me to start driving on autopilot might have been a bit different than how long it took you. But the point is, is that neither of us knew when it was going to be. We didn't make a decision. Yeah, we for, didn't choose to think about something else. Exactly. You didn't say, oh, I got, you know, I got this. I've been driving for a couple of years, so now I can think about something else if I want to. That happened without our permission, right? So you go along a little bit further in time and you'll get to the second stage of complacency where there's no more internal stimulus or fear at all. In other words, where most of us are, for instance, getting into the car, you don't get into the car scared. But if you nearly get hit by a big transport truck going through, blowing through a red light, nearly kills you, for sure you're going to be thinking about the risk now. 
but it required that external stimulus. In other words, you don't get in the car scared and you're not worried about getting on the freeway and having to merge like you were when you were first learning how to drive, right? As you're at the very beginning part, before you get to the first stage of complacency, and you can certainly see the, you know, things like this make it a lot easier. You see the diagram in the article or in the book, right? But your risk is coming down, right? You get better with riding the bike, your risk comes down. You get better with driving the car, your skill improves, the risk comes down. There's a natural tendency to think that as time goes on, your risk is going to keep coming down predictably and reliably like it did at the beginning and fairly rapidly as well too. So it's not uncommon to hear somebody say, well, you know, I've been welding for 12 years and then somebody else, well, yeah, well, I've been welding for 24. Well, and it's the same example you mentioned in the book with the stepfather. Um, they're, they're sort of competing for who's a better driver. One's 12 years, one's... I think it was 27 or something years like that. And the counterintuitive nature of thinking, like you're saying, that because you have more experience, you are now safer at doing the thing or the task or the job. But I mean, but really, did there, you know, after, <laughs> after two years, how much improvement in the motor skills do you really think there is? Really, you know, I mean, perhaps he got slightly better or she got slightly better at parallel parking the car. But I don't think, you know, I don't think, or finding a parking spot, yeah. perhaps, right? But I don't think, I, I don't think any other real skills, you know, people aren't certainly trying to, they're certainly not making an effort to get better. Like, you don't see them saying, well, every summer I go to performance driving school to really make sure that, you know, my skills are improved. Every year I go to skid school to make sure this winter, you know, just in case something happens. You don't hear a lot of people doing Doing no. that kind of stuff. Only kids you know, borrowing their every, parents' every, cars to do it. Yeah, every five years I just go back and take defensive driving again just to make sure I'm on top of my game. You don't you don't get you don't get a lot of that stuff. And that is exactly, if you will, do you care about driving safety? Of course I do. Do you think you'll likely get slack over time? Of course I will. Are you willing to do anything about it? No. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of equilibrium and the eventual termination of the skill development, and also the, the questioning of your own safety judgment. So here's where it gets tricky. You get to that first stage of complacency where the skill or the fear is no longer preoccupying, which means your mind can wander, but you don't know about all of this. So now you start having more and more time mind not on task you're not paying any attention to it you don't notice it at all because it's all happening in your subconscious right you're becoming more and more on autopilot as time goes on you can more and more opportunities for your eyes to also not be on task and your mind not being on task. So, even though you've got more experience than the guy who's just starting, you're actually going to likely have more defenseless moments as time goes on. And once you get to that second stage, where there's no more internal fear at all, now you can be getting in the car, not even thinking about driving. 
Some people, you know, if you think about people when they used to get in the car on the phone, talking on the phone, drive all the way to where they were going and be on the phone with the same person the whole while. Never think about driving the whole, the whole trip. At any one of those times where their eyes were also not on task, they were defenseless and they wouldn't get the benefit of their reflexes. So it's illusionary. Yeah, you've been, you know, maybe you've been driving for 15 years, 27 years, and the other guy's only been driving for, for 12. But the likelihood is that you're just more complacent than the other person is now. And whatever original skills you've had and they had probably haven't changed all that much over the years because neither of you is making an effort to improve them. And I guess that, I mean, that must explain then why older workers, they, I mean, like, well-trained, experienced workers, they get hurt and killed so often, right? And same with the stories of the experts that die. Um, I don't know, like extra mountain guides where we live, stuff like that. Well, or like, you know, you hear about the scuba instructor, twenty six years, who, who you know, who dies, you know, uh, running out of running out of air, or the the you know, the skydiving instructor who jumped out of the plane after twenty two years without a parachute on or something, and that wasn't actually too far from. Uh, from Calgary, I think that was uh, that was right around Airdrie when you guys were were living out there and uh, and teaching you know teaching in Edmonton at the, at the high schools and uh, at the Polytechnic Institutes. I think that's right around when that happened. I remember thinking, you know, we hear about experts dying all the time, and because we hear about it all the time, that's not new. Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily twig with us either until you think about it and go, well, wait a minute. Young, inexperienced, untrained workers getting hurt makes perfect intuitive sense to any of us, and all of us were those young workers somewhere. Yeah, we didn't have the skills or the habits. Right, and it, and it makes perfect sense, right? You, didn't, you, you may not even have known all that much about the hazards or the equipment or how it moved or the, how, you know, what, the, what the sweep of the arm might have... You know, you, there might have been... Some of that as well, too, that you weren't you weren't aware of or, or, or in knowledge of, really. But, you know, um, that's 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 actually rarely, rarely the case that it's knowledge. But anyhow, I don't want to get into that just yet. But the the young guys getting hurt, that's easy to explain. And then hence more training, proper training would be a, a viable solution. When, and I'm, I'm going to use Christian uh, Silvestri's story from Australia. He's our uh, distributor there in Australia. And uh, he wrote the book, Third Generation Safety, which is really the neuroscience behind the critical error reduction techniques. A really, really interesting book and uh, nice, a nice read as well, too, everybody. Um, you know, pleasant. Christian would open up his session saying that, you know, he worked for a, a, a major, uh, one of the, the biggest oil companies in the world down there. And he said he had to go investigate an accident that happened to, and he said that, ironically, the guy was quite, quite senior, uh, been there 34 years, but he went by the name of Freddie, and Freddie had cut his finger off um, in the machine shop um, on this machine. The, the ironic thing was that there was nothing wrong with the machine, and Christian had to fill in the last form on the, you know, the, <laughs> that pesky last form in the accident incident investigation form action taken to prevent recurrence. Now, typically, he said my default option was always reindoctrinated worker, but in this case, I just couldn't write it down because Freddie had been there 34 years, and he was the person we used to train all the new employees on this machine. And I just stopped and 
went, wait a minute. There's got to be something missing. And that's actually when he started looking and eventually found Safe Start and me and we, we started working together. But I used to hear this all the time, Hunter, when I first started out. I mean, I wasn't that much older than you. And these people would be talking about how come... And I just don't understand it. One of our best guys, really positive, good worker, never complains. And, you know, then they would start talking about the tragedy or, or how badly he got hurt or that they couldn't believe how bad, you know, and they couldn't believe it happened. And then they, they did go on about the family and everything else, too, because that's always part of it. And But they had no explanation in that sort of, well, it's got to be training. They must not have known about the hazards. They must not have known about the protection. That, you know, there was never any, well, what about the complacency in human error? And yet we all experience this on a daily basis. It's just very curious how so much of that could almost be blatantly ignored when we all experience it literally on a daily basis, like complacency leading to mind non-task, leading to a performance error. To bring it back, you said that you pretty you figured out the complacency continuum when you had kids, right? Because you saw their skill curve ramping up, the risk is coming down, they're getting hurt less, their friends are getting hurt less as they get older. Is that true? Um I think I think the complacency continuum is sort of circa uh, 2008 somewhere somewhere in that time frame I was looking back through older uh, older powerpoints for things you know I done you know Bogota Mexico City you know Kuala Lumpur back in uh, 2008 you know Mumbai 2011 and by 2011, the complacency continuum was in all of the PowerPoints in the 2008 or whatever. I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it in there. So somewhere along there, I, uh, I definitely started figuring out those two points. Now, interestingly enough, they, they're operational. In other words, you know, you, you, you can actually, you know, teach people about the complacency continuum. You can teach them about some of these traps that they can easily fall into, thinking that the experience gives them reduced risk instead of simply just more more defenseless or more opportunities for defenseless moments. So to get back to your, your question before about the old dogs and the new tricks, what I would suggest is that unless you can show the old dogs exactly how it all works you won't likely get a new trick here yeah. them. okay but people are people are logical people are not interested in getting hurt and if you do show them how it all works and you connect the dots for them and you give them examples that they can relate to like driving things that they have seen and they start get the aha uh -huh. right you know that makes sense now that you mention and so in, in a lot of these things it is it is very sequential right in, in other words the first thing you have to understand is that the real danger is these two errors occurring simultaneously and not getting a reflex 
Because if you don't know that, then, you know, you still might be thinking that it's just about multiple layers of protection or whatever it is, right? Instead of, you know, being able to prevent the error in the first place by being able to recognize the mechanics or the mechanisms that are causing it, right? But you can also help them practice a bit. Like some of the tools we use, rate your state, anticipating error, that'll also help once you've shown them how that um, the continuum works, then you can actually help them work on improving their ability to be paying attention, their ability to have eyes and mind on task with some of those to- some of those tools. Well, as I said before, what, if you can get them to understand that this is going to happen, even though I've told you about it, yeah, that doesn't matter. I mean, it's like, okay, you're going to get older. It's still going to happen. You're not going to like it. Don't get it. It's still going to happen. Once you recognize that it's going to happen, what you then need to understand, and I think you and I were, uh, we were, we were talking about this in the drive yesterday, as I said, you need to understand that you have to break into that. But it's so easy now compared to what it used to be, where you just need to set an alarm on your phone. And if I asked you, okay, when are you likely going to be the most complacent today, where there's, you know, a certain amount of hazardous energy around, okay? So likely when you're riding your bike back from Collins or when you're riding your bike back from from the village. It's five kilometers and there's cars going 80, 100 kilometers an hour. I haven't been hit on, hit by a car on my bike, I don't think, ever in my life, so why would it happen now? Well, yeah, <laughs> I haven't been killed yet, so why would I need to worry? Exactly. <laughs> and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, at the tender age of 25, living proof that the complacency continuum is alive and well. Yes, exactly. Well, Larry, I think you're right. And I think that's quite quite a bit for this chapter in terms of you know unpacking this a little bit more. Are there other skills and techniques just besides working on your habits that people need to work on? Yeah, well, you t- well we talked about this a bit already, the self-triggering coming up. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, in the next chapter, so I don't want to get too much into it, but Really, what I'd like to leave everybody with with this chapter is the leverage, the the incredibly favorable leverage that exists for all of us, simply by putting the 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 most minimal amount of effort into improving your habits and skills with eyes on task. You know looking where you're going to set something, looking where you're going to rest your hand on, stick your hand in somewhere. Now, that that it's your house and that you know that it's not a jagged surface or sharp, it's not the point. The point is you just want to get in the habit of looking first. And if you see it, you'll get a reflex. So for all of us, Habits like looking where you're going to rest your hand on or stick your hand into is a great habit to work on. Probably the most difficult habit is to move your eyes before you move. Hands, feet, body, or car. Move your eyes first. Okay? Look for things that could cause you or anybody else to lose their balance, traction, or grip if they didn't see them. Because we know not everybody has their eyes on task. Look for where other people are looking. 
Do they see you? This is incredibly important. If you drive a motorcycle or ride a motorcycle, you know this. Drive like you're invisible. But it's a great thing for all of us to do as well, too. You know, when the light turns green, look for line of fire. You might have right of way, but the Mack truck has right of weight. So, you know, these sorts of things provide an incredible amount of leverage for very, very little effort. And then you get the benefit of your reflexes much more often. And if you combine that with any kind of anticipating air, rate your state effort to force you back to the moment artificially, like with an alarm. Deliberate practice. Yeah, deliberate, some form of deliberate practice to get yourself back into that. And as I was saying to you yesterday, to eventually get to the personal habit where when you get up in the morning, and most of us, I'm not saying it's first cup of coffee for me, but usually somewhere between the third or the fourth gallon of coffee, I am <laughs> contemplating what I am going to get accomplished during the day. And if you just give that a second thought and say, and where would likely something bad, when would it happen to me today in terms of potential for serious injury or performance error? When would complacency leading to mind not on task likely peak for me today? And then just set an alarm for that time to rate your state. It's not that complicated to just give yourself a, a little bit of help because no matter what it is, like I said, it doesn't matter what the activity is, it doesn't matter what the level of hazardous energy is, eventually it will get filtered out to business as normal. And just like driving the car, your mind will go off task without your permission. So we can't beat that. But put a bit of habit, effort into our habits and skills with eyes on task. There's a tremendous amount of leverage there. And if you combine that with the next critical error reduction technique, which is learning how to self-trigger on the active states, now you have reduced your risk of serious error or injury significantly. Well, Larry, thank you so much again for expanding on this chapter here. A lot of good conversation, a lot of good help, I think, for all of the listeners. So thanks again. Okay, you're welcome. We'll hopefully uh, be talking to you all again. The next one is really kind of putting it all together to come up with the, the concept of self-triggering. So hopefully you can join us then. Thanks again for listening to the Defenseless Moments podcast. This brings us to the end of episode number six. Remember, the book's available on Amazon, and the individual articles are available on the Paradigm Shift landing page. Click the link in the episode notes to access the book and the individual articles. We'll be back in one month to talk about chapter number six, the state-to-error risk pattern, and the concept of self-triggery. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes, and if you're enjoying the conversations, feel free to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening.